5: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod, Pina of Sports Illustrated. Michael, we got a lot of fierce responses to our all NBA debate from last week. Lots of really good takes from people all around the globe. But I wanted to start with something else that happened over the weekend because I thought it was noteworthy. Um, you know, you and I, one guy we've always talked about. Luka Doncic, as one of the future faces of the NBA, not just us, obviously. I think most people have figured out that the secret is out on Luka. There was kind of a shaky, shady moment there this weekend that got him ejected, where he took a swing kind of towards the midsection of Colin Sexton. And I was just curious, what did you make of that play? And uh, when you're looking back kind of at Luka's season as a whole, there's been a lot of technical fouls, whining to the officials and all sorts of stuff. And I'm just wondering, was this a breaking point for you? Do you view this now as potentially a problem or something that we need to take into account when we're imagining the future of Luka Doncic?
3: I mean, I think when I when I look at Luka and consider where he is and his age and his experience level, you know, it's okay for him to make mistakes. And I think one of the you know, you look at the numbers where he's just like basically averaging a 28 point triple double. That's like what I kind of expect out of him this early in his career, which is kind of wild. And so when you look at the areas of his game and just who he is that need to get better, you know, I think that whining to officials is certainly something that needs to Uh, curtail a little bit. And I know the Dallas Mavericks have spoken to him about it. Rick Carlisle, after he picked up two technical fouls in a recent loss against the Sacramento Kings, uh, said that they've made Luca aware that, hey, like, you're basically at the top of the league in technical fouls, and you're nearing a suspension for the number that you've accumulated. So, like, cut it out. (laughs) So I think that, you know, he will... He'll temper himself as he ages. But, like, the play against Sexton, I think when I first saw it, it looked pretty dirty to me and didn't look great. And then you listen to, uh, you know, uh, his explanation afterwards, and you you read Colin Sexton saying that he thought it was just a basketball play. That type of stuff happens all the time. And so I was a little less uh, bothered by it after Colin spoke up. Um but, yeah, I mean, it's it's not great <laughs> to swing your hand and hit an opposing player in the groin area. That's just not what you want on a basketball court.
5: Yeah, I mean, kudos to Colin Sexton for taking the high road. I don't know how that's a basketball play. Um, what was Luca's explanation exactly, <laughs> or what convinced you that you thought, hey, that's okay, I'm going to give him a pass?
3: I think that it was 100% Colin Sexton's reaction. I mean, like Luca's response was basically just I was shocked that it happens, that that they called a flagrant 2 on a play like that because stuff like that happens all the time. And I wouldn't say stuff like that necessarily happens all the time. I mean, there are plays where incidental contact occurs and and players, you know, swing their arms and just their arms happen to hit An opponent in the groin area, Um, and that's a really sensitive um, area that refs, you know, try to uh, adjudicate more than any other type of contact besides, you know, a head injury type of situation. So, like, I don't know. I... I (sighs) It was—I can't say from watching the clip whether or not Luca meant to hit him there. I strongly doubt that he did, but he certainly was upset when Colin Sexton kind of banged into him to box him out, and he was trying to to strike back, and, and yeah, we got what we got.
5: Yeah, if it was some premeditated action to really do harm, I think he would have probably landed it a little bit more carefully. It probably swung with a little bit more force. But it's still a reckless play. I think it deserved the ejection. There's no no place for that in this sport whatsoever. And I guess what I'm getting at, Michael, is here's a player that we've hyped up, or at least I've hyped up, as the Slovenian mm-hmm. wonder boy, right? Um, the golden boy, the future face of the league. You know, he's going to take the mantle from LeBron one day. Incredibly high up in the all-star vote getting. And incidents like this have a way of sticking to players, don't they? I'm not sure this one was quite as bad. But, you know, Chris Paul in college, people remember that. Nicholas Batum with the crazy swing, um, you know, in the game for France against Spain, <laughs> that stuck with him for a decade. I, you know, again, this isn't quite on that level, but I I look at Luca differently now after I watch that play. I do. It's not like I've, he's tarnished forever, but I'm just wondering: is he wound a little bit too tight? How do we square this? Like, you know, guy who plays with joy most of the time with this, you know, these these moments of rage and these kind of fits where he loses composure.
3: I mean. I think basketball is super competitive, super emotional, and we had this same discussion about Giannis Antetokounmpo when in the bubble, you know, he headbutts uh, Mo Wagner, and uh, I believe he was ejected from that game, or at least given a a fine or a technical... There was some sort of um, uh, uh, penalty for that action, and and that was not... Don't forget,
5: early in his career, he body-slammed Mike Dunleavy Jr. during a playoff game, you know?
3: (laughs) Yeah, very memorable. I, I, I wrote about Giannis uh, when that play happened um, against the against Mo Wagner, and uh, just kind of the reputation that was building within him. And so, did you, know, you honestly? Was
5: your column to get him banned from the sport, or what did you
3: write? <laughs> I don't think I was that harsh. No, uh, life in prison, I believe, was the kicker oh, for my piece. Oh, jeez, come on! But, 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 um, but no. I mean, my point is that we don't look at, or at least I don't look at Giannis as a dirty player today. Ever. I mean, I, I that play against Mo Wagner just like doesn't really. Um, come to mind at all when I think about Giannis, and you look at Giannis's technical fouls this season, I think he only has four, where Luka has something like 15 right around the league lead, so I feel like you can um, rectify your own reputation when it comes to how you respond to officials and how you behave on the court as long as you kind of keep everything in check and don't respond to players who are intentionally trying to get under your skin at every turn.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, it was a high-pressure moment. We're late in the season here. You know, the Mavericks, they've been trying their best to blow games against bad teams. I'm sure that's really frustrating for everybody involved. And so maybe there's some sort of baggage there kind of hanging over things, you know, and obviously they're in a really tight playoff seating. They've kind of whined about, uh, you know, the play-in tournament and all that too. So maybe everybody's just afraid. I'm willing to give Luka a pass if that's the case, but we can't be seeing these incidents regularly. You know, I think that's the kind of thing where as— analyst we need to draw a line here i mean i understand it it wasn't the worst thing in the world but i mean michael you don't want me doing that to you do you
3: no i i would not like that no um for the record that's not something that i wake up in the morning and i'm looking forward to so i appreciate it if you never did it that would be wonderful
5: and I would appreciate it if Luca just <laughs> gives us the good Luca, the joyful Luca in this postseason, rather than the whining Luca. And he knows it's there. He's talked about it. it's not just the Mavericks kind of putting the pressure on him. I think he feels it himself, and that's part of growing up. You know, there's a fine line. It's fun to kind of marvel when he's ripping his jerseys because he's so competitive, right? But mm-hmm. you got to stay on the right side of that line, Luca. That's all.
3: Can I can I say one more thing about it? It's like. Luca is a very physical, Loki, a very physical player. Um, like he engages defenders on drives, and I mean, there was one play against the the Brooklyn Nets last week where it was pretty awesome. Like Kevin Durant fouled Luca, um, and then they cut away to a conversation that KD had with uh, referee Ed Malloy, trying to kind of detail why the foul was called and what katie could have done differently defensively but like my my point here is basically that like Luca is just very physical with whoever's defending him and and defenders respond in kind and he gets beat up quite a bit this goes back to last year in the bubble with the clippers and marcus morris and montrez harrell and that whole thing so i think like i'm not i'm not like overlooking the fact that you should never swing your arm and intentionally, if that's what happened, hit a player in the groin area or anything like that. Like, I'm not condoning that behavior. But I am saying that Luca can't just live off joy for his entire career if players are just like, you know trying to be as physical as possible with him. And I think whistles are a huge part of his game and he's going to need refs on his side. So it's just going to be interesting to see kind of how he evolves in that regard throughout his career.
5: Yeah. He needs some Davis brothers on his side too, though, doesn't he? I mean, they need to get some enforcers.
3: Wow. The Davis brothers. I have not heard a reference to them in very a very, very long time. That was very... That was awesome. I'm not sure they Enjoy were actually
5: that. brothers, but you know, <laughs> they were both last name Davis. They both would clean this kind of stuff up for the star level players. He needs his Charles Oakley, right? It's not going to be KP. I mean, I'm not really sure who it is on that team. If you're a Dallas, would you try to add somebody well, in that mix
3: just to kind of protect him a little bit? That's basically what they did in the offseason, right? Like they they bring in James Johnson, they bring in um, more physical player. I mean, they trade Seth Curry for Josh Richardson um I feel like that was a little that like that was a little bit of the calculus with their offseason moves wasn't it and then they realized that okay you know shooting is a little bit more important than having tough guys on the roster to go to bat for Luca
5: not sure I would put Jason Richardson and-, and Charles Oakley in the same conversation but I get what you mean I and mean, it's just too bad James Johnson's not capable of playing more minutes and maybe he could be that role um They may have to find somebody there. Maybe just designate Boban, get him upset, tell him John Wick's coming, (laughs) get out there and get some revenge. Uh, Hey, speaking of guys who have taken a lot of abuse this year, Zion Williamson, um, broken finger out indefinitely, and the Pelicans were really, really upset about it. Executive David Griffin called a press conference, which they streamed online, in which he just absolutely tore the NBA league office a new one, blamed the officials for Williamson's injury and said this was preventable. He takes too much contact going to the basket. He made all sorts of grandiose statements about how egregious it was, and saying that uh, you know Zion absorbs more violence than any player since Shaq. Do you agree with Griffin, or do you agree with the people who are saying, "Come on, dude, tone it down a notch"?
3: So this is a fascinating topic, and I happened to write about it last week um, on SI, where uh, you know I wrote about how Zion is the most. Difficult player to officiate, in my opinion, since Shaq, for a variety of reasons. And then I, I spoke to um, a the for a former head of the NBA and the WNBA's uh, officials um, about what makes Zion so difficult to uh, to referee, and so. I think on the particular play in question where Zion got hurt, I mean, he's going for an offensive rebound and the ball just kind of jams his finger and it, it gets fractured. And David Griffin's argument is basically that this was compounding trauma on his body from a season of getting the crap beaten out of him. His finger, his finger
5: just finally couldn't take the final straw, Michael. <laughs> it was the 100th
3: <laughs> blow that did it. Yeah, so, you know, I think that I'm not a doctor, uh, but I think that, that that I'll probably push back on a little bit. But it's been this really fascinating push and pull the entire season with Zion because everybody knows when Zion touches the ball what he's going to do with it. He's going right to the rim. There's nothing you can do to stop him from getting there except, you know, uh, be physical with him. Um, far more physical than, uh, you know, in, when we were just talking about Luca. Like the Zion physicality is on a whole different level. And some of that contact is initiated by Zion. Some of it is initiated by defenders who are helpless and have no other recourse but to hack at him. And, you know, Zion leads the league in and ones. He's, I-, I believe, first or just behind Giannis. In free throw attempts, like he gets to the line a ton. He draws a ton of fouls. But he also, you know, there are certain plays where no whistle is is blown, where he for sure draws contact and, and probably deserves a whistle. And Stan Van Gundy's been talking about this the entire season And I think the Pelicans organization just had kind of reached their breaking point with it um, when he got hurt and used it as an opportunity to speak out about just how frustrated they were with how Zion has been officiated. But I, I can't really, you know, after doing a little bit of research and talking to some smart people who know what they're talking about when it comes to officiating players, like I can't blame referees for missing calls on Zion. They've never seen a player move that fast. Who's that large? Um, ever, uh, he's totally unprecedented, and so I'll, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll support refs who have a difficult time trying to adjudicate the rule book for a player who, you know, it, it, he just is unprecedented in so many different ways. Um, well, have you ever, a lot of the-
5: have you ever participated in those preseason calls where that's like, hey, here's the new point of emphasis, and the refs show it off? Maybe this offseason, it's just going to be a two-hour-long Zion tape, right, (laughs) where we just go through every single one of his moves side by side, and everybody just kind of decides this is a defensive foul, this is a charge, this is a no-call, because I think Zion gets away with some calls, too, doesn't he?
3: For sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, he draws a ton of—like, if you just watch the film, um, you know, there are plays where It doesn't look like anyone has touched him, but they probably did. But it's just like Zion is so big and so strong. And that's what makes me think about Shaq and how he was just impossible to officiate. And even like LeBron at certain points of his career, when LeBron was just ultra aggressive and attacking the pain and trying to to get to the rim, like when you hit a player like that, who's that strong and that large, it's just you don't, it's like really hard to, to discern where the contact is, how much contact was made? Because these guys are so brawny and so muscular, so Zion's definitely in that category. And I, like, I don't know how you rectify or solve this dilemma. He's not going to get slower, <laughs> so like trying to blow the whistle in real time is is going to be difficult going forward.
5: Yep, you're going to have to update your pol- policies. There's no question about it. Hey, when you look at Griffin's comments, so obviously he's trying to send a message to the league about hey, protect my mm-hmm. guy. He's trying to send a message to Zion saying, hey, I'm out here trying to protect you. He's definitely trying to send a message to the fan base that says, hey, I'm in it with you. Like, this was a bummer. You know, right now, they're a game and a half out of the play-in behind San Antonio. I mean, it's kind of a long, long odds that they're going to be able to make up that ground. But San Antonio has been struggling a little bit here lately. Obviously, their life would be a lot easier if they had Zion for that push, Was he laying it on a little bit thick? I mean, I heard a lot of people kind of say, dude, just chill out. Like, we understand you're upset, but like, are you kind of scapegoating the officials here for a season that, you know, ultimately as an organization, you guys underperformed? Like, you got an amazing year from Zion. There's been terrible spacing on offense. Um, The guards don't really make sense outside of maybe Lonzo. And uh, you know, defensively, just the effort's not there night to night. I mean, do you emphasize at all what the people who are saying? All right, dude, like, look in the mirror first before you start just like you know blasting off to the point where the NBA has to fine you.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see why someone would think that, and like, I think that there's a calculated trade-off there. If you're you're David Griffin, where you are speaking to Zion, you are letting Zion know that. Hey, this organization has your back. Hey, I have your back. We know what you've been going through all season um, and how frankly dangerous sometimes it feels for you in attacking the basket, with you know David Griffin. I don't know if this is true or not, but David Griffin saying that players have said to Zion, Hey, I'm gonna keep hitting you because the refs aren't calling anything. I don't I don't know if about that being you know being true in the sense that Zion gets a lot of whistles yeah Um, he gave that
5: quote like he was watching like an assassin movie right and people were like (laughs) like assassins were coming out like promising to take care of Zion like leaving little notes here that like we're gonna harm you it was it was a lot I mean I guess I respect his power of the pulpit reminded me a little bit of Michael Malone when he hops on his high horse few guys do it better um and Griffin made his point I mean obviously it made headlines no no way around it but um, I mean, are we overstating this slightly you know I mean is Zion is this really Zion under siege?
3: I mean probably not <laughs> to be, I mean you know like it was it was very uh, aggressive, and yeah. you know when I mentioned it being a calculated trade off like the downside there is you know he went basically at Monty McCutcheon. Not necessarily by name, but he he called out his position. Um, And so that's – I don't think that that's smart uh, to get on the wrong side of – I'm not saying that there will be bias going forward or anything like that. But, you know, it's – you shouldn't do something like that. I don't think that's very intelligent going forward knowing that you have to deal with the the league and the director of officials – For years, Uh, hopefully, you know Zion resigns and stays in New Orleans for the rest of his. Like you, this is not a problem that's going to go away because you did this press conference, and so you want to have a constructive relationship with the NBA's officials and with um, with the league office when it comes to making these these decisions. And so, I, I, you know, maybe that'll backfire for him. I don't know. But he, clearly he thought that supporting Zion at this time was more important than anything else.
5: Yeah, you know, I watched that press conference and I thought it's very possible he just called Monty beforehand and said, hey, Monty, I'm going to have to go off. All right. It's like when the, the baseball managers go up to the umpires and say, hey, <laughs> you know, I need you to throw me out. You've heard those famous stories, right? It's like, you know, I've got to make a stand here. So I'm just going to keep swearing at you until you throw me out, basically asking of for course. it. Kind of felt like maybe that's what Griffin was doing, and, and hopefully they'll be able to mend those fences. Um, you know, Monty's obviously a nice guy. He's seen every side of these arguments before. I don't think he's going to, you know, hold that against, uh, right, against right, their organization. Right, right, right. Um, you know, one other thought I had on this, you know, a lot of people wanted to counter and say, well, how is Zion getting it so bad if he's like fourth in the league in free throw attempts? Shouldn't that invalidate all of their criticism? No, that does not make any sense whatsoever. If he's getting to the line, uh, the fourth most in the league, that means he's already taking a lot of abuse and it's very possible he's taking even more. That was just a kind of a pet peeve I had, Michael. People were saying that on Twitter as a way to be like, oh, sit down and shut up, Pelicans. He's already getting the calls. Well, he's earning the calls. There's no question about that.
3: No, I 100% agree with you, and it doesn't—he could lead the league in free-throw attempts. And should. That's not a way to refute that argument. And
5: should. I mean, given how many drives and how hard he plays and how hard he goes downhill to the basket, he should lead the league in free-throw attempts and probably will next year.
0: An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge— Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.
5: Last question on Zion here for you. Uh, Big picture, grand scheme of things for his career. Was this a lost season? In other words, did the Pelicans get him closer to being a title level player than he was at the end of his rookie year? I mean, and that's a a tricky question. You could take that however you want, whether it's the pieces around him, whether it's the progress he showed. Do you view this as sort of a, a lost season or a treading water campaign?
3: I mean, I I don't personally. I thought that he was, you know, I I, I don't like rewarding most improved player to players in their second or third or even fourth year on some occasions, because that's just natural growth. But Zion's leap from rookie year to sophomore year was like, he went from a very good rookie to, okay, this player is going to win multiple MVPs and there's nothing anyone can do to stop him. So I wouldn't call it lost. I think that it was meaningful in that regard. And, you know, heading into this season, I don't know how many people thought that the Pelicans were even going to make the play-in. I mean, where they are is pretty on point based on, you know, they trade away Drew Holiday. They don't have a lot of shooting. They don't have a lot of depth. And so... I I mean, what how things have transpired. I did not expect Zion to play this well and to become this type of player this early in his career. So I think it's just it's it was a positive step in the right direction for him personally. And like I don't know about you, I didn't really expect the Pelicans to even make the playoffs. So the fact that they're not going to isn't isn't stunning to me.
5: Yeah, you know, I think it was a transition season. No matter what, we knew that coming in after the holiday trade. Um, Zion has absolutely overperformed my expectations, uh, by a lot. And I've been really, really impressed by him all season long. And, you know, it's, it's almost a case where he's become so good that it puts more pressure on everybody else around him. And now we can see who can handle that pressure. Can Griffin and Stan Van Gundy and those other pieces on the roster handle it, or they're going to have Mm -hmm. to be major changes as this guy kind of grows and evolves because he's arriving ahead of schedule. They're going to have to, uh, to figure this thing out and really get him some more help. I just don't think that they can look at next year and be in the same spot, 11th in the West, 31 and 37. No. With a roster that doesn't make sense and, you know, still be okay. I think at that point, the clock starts to tick. Not that he's going to leave, but that you just get a lot more pressure. And so I'm trying to apply it preemptively, Michael. I'm saying go out there, David Griffin, channel this anger and have the best summer of anybody on the market. You've got this incredible player. Now find some guys who can actually make him better. I think that's what we need to see because Zion's going to make his teammates better. That needs to be a two way street that's got really confrontational there I, I'm not really screaming at him it just you know I think that we need to see <laughs> some real steps in the right direction from that organization and not just make this the Zion show where he has to do absolutely everything because if that's the case broken fingers happen and then you're up a creek right and then you're and then you're whining about it and nobody wants that for Zion's career can I ask you a personal question Michael um at what moment did you fall in love with Zion because I've noticed a real uh, change here from you. Mm-hmm. I feel like you always liked him. Now you just pencil him in for six MVPs. I think I heard you say two minutes ago, if I'm not mistaken, maybe I got some <laughs> earwax in my ear. I mean, the tone here is just gone up to the next level. I don't know if you're in a good uh, mood because of uh, mother's day yesterday or something, but when was that moment for you? What was the, the day or the play where you fell in love with Zion head over heels?
3: You know, I don't I don't know if there was a particular moment that comes to mind just off the top of my head. See, the
5: problem is you were probably in the NBA stats database looking at his like percentage around the rim (laughs) and you were just like, good God, I've never seen anything like this. Everybody else is like slurping his highlights and, you know, watching these amazing dunks and you're just deep cutting in that database, weren't you, Michael?
3: Yeah, I guess you could say that. That's that's me. That that is a good accurate <laughs> description of what I do in my free time. Um no, I I you know there wasn't any particular game. It was just like he had a string. I don't know when it was exactly. I want to say even like even before like the All-Star break I was like this guy is doing things we've never really seen before. I mean, the regular like 15 for 18 from the floor or like you know um just like r- r- absurd field goal percentages with every shot being right at the rim it just it's like defies physics it defies logic there there just is no defensive game plan for him and he's just okay. doing it all with Jackson Hayes and Stephen Adams at the five it's it's amazing His shot chart kind of looks
5: like when people go to the gun range and they're really good, right? And then they bring the paper back (laughs) and it's just a whole bunch of holes right around the bullseye. I mean, that's pretty much his shot chart. I I feel like what you're describing, though, timeline-wise was really like, I think you saw point Zion and it was over. That's what it seems like to me, you know? Because that's really, when they put the ball in his hands whenever it was in January and he started just really doing the locomotive stuff, going to Mm -hmm. the basket and getting layup after layup, not being reliant upon anybody else to set him up, I feel like, was that, I mean, I think there was a whole wave of people who were kind of caught up in that particular movement, you know, point Zion kind of became the wave. Was that you?
3: Yeah, you know, I think I, I wrote a piece right around that time frame, right before, it was. there was a game against the Pacers where he just basically brought the ball up the court on every single possession in the first half, and I remember watching that game and just being like, I feel so bad for Domas Sabonis, like, he was... There's just nothing that could prepare you for this to like pick up a guy like Zion at around half court and have to deal with him like this, this is just not in the in the job description. And I wrote a piece that was basically calling for more Zion at the five minutes because I wanted to see him obviously operate with more space and wider driving lanes. And then, you know, we never got Zion at the five, and it just didn't matter. So I think that, that that point, I was like, okay, this dude is very, very special, and I cannot wait to see what he does when we do see him in an environment where the pieces make more sense.
5: Yeah, so I wrote my Zion think piece like two weeks before that, and they were just allowing him to dribble the ball up the court every once in a while off of a defensive rebound. And mm-hmm. I remember writing like, hey, this is pretty interesting. He just needs to be doing a lot more. And it was actually not that good of a call because I was just like, please, more Zion, more Zion. <clears throat> I was just begging, really. And, you know, the the thing with Zion at the five that I never bought into was the defensive side. And I think that's a huge, huge issue for David yep. Griffin. He's got to trade for Miles Turner, bottom line. Like he's got to throw up some dumb package of picks and whatever else to get Miles Turner so he can have a center who stretches just a little bit on offense and then just takes care of everything internally on defense. If they do that, we're going to forgive all the criticism for Bledsoe and Stephen Adams and all that other stuff. You grab Miles Turner, give Zion a real front court partner and now we're in business. Um what do you think of that idea, Michael?
3: I think, you know, Miles Turner has been the piece that has always made a ton of sense for the Pelicans and They are paying Steven Adams. Uh, I would assume that Steven Adams would be a part of that deal, and you would just throw all of the picks, uh, or not all, because they have a ton of picks, but a lot of picks Indiana's way, and let Indiana kind of, I don't know where Indiana's going right now, but uh, maybe a rebuild of some sort is on the horizon, but either way, having a ton of picks would do them good.
5: So all season long, I've thought Rudy Gobert should be the Defensive Player of the Year, but then I saw Miles Turner hold back Greg Foster from a fist fight with his own player Goga. <laughs> Did you see this interaction between assistant coach and player from the Pacers last week? You were saying like I don't know what's going on with the Pacers. I can tell mm-hmm. you what's going on with the Pacers: internal self combustion, where an injured Miles Turner has to prevent uh, basically a fist fight between uh, you know an assistant coach and a player he's been tutoring the whole time after the player said, sit the F down, after drilling a three-pointer in a game that the Pacers were trailing by 24 because he didn't want to hear his coach yelling at him anymore. Michael, I mean, should we really be giving, should we consider this off-court work for Miles Turner as part of his overall Defensive Player of the Year um, campaign or case?
3: You know, if there was like a little box on the ballot where you could write a comment for why you chose a particular player... It's like, I, I please just explain. You- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please show your work. I could just picture like you. I know you don't have a ballot anymore for um, at the Washington Post. But if that were a thing, I can just see you, uh, you know, Checking off the box next to Miles Turner's name, and then just scribbling in, "Did you see what he did to Greg Foster? That was very impressive." And so, a, a link to yeah, the YouTube I'm, I'm
5: highlight, him. you know, <laughs> It's just like look how quickly he got up there, and he's wrapped both arms around Foster as a great bear hug, great technique. Congratulations, Miles Turner. Um, <laughs> in any event, uh, Rudy Gobert should be the Defensive Player of the Year. I was only kidding there, Michael. You know, I mentioned yes. earlier how the Pelicans were chasing the Spurs, right? Spurs have had a little bit of a rocky couple of weeks here. Um, you know they've had a really tough schedule, I think, as well, um, based on some of the disruptions earlier in the season. Kind of catching up to them. Um, it's been a fun team this year. You know, a lot of really intriguing young players. If I'm not mistaken, Michael, I might have had some sources that told me you wrote a piece about Dejounte Murray that's coming out this week. Is that right?
3: I did, yes. And I- I'm wanting to know who your sources are. Um. I-, I, w- I would
5: never divulge that in public. <laughs> um, I have two questions for you. First of all, why did you write about um, baby boy, DeJounte Murray, and not Big Body, which is his nickname, Keldon Johnson, who I've kind of been uh, enamored with this season? I think he needs the Michael Pina profile treatment. And then second of all, can you just give me an overview of, of the piece about DeJounte? Because When we talk about these young point guards, Ja Moran and and that whole generation, you know, we've been arguing Shea Gilgis, Alexander, Trey Young, LaMelo and all that. um, Like who's got next? Murray gets overlooked a little bit. I don't think it's insane to say that he could be an all-star one day, Um, even though he's been in the league for a while. Maybe you disagree. I'm not sure. But what prompted you to write about him? And then what do you see as his ceiling?
3: I don't think it's insane that he could be an all-star one day. I th- I literally think is a direct quote from I want to say Jamal Crawford in my piece. Wow, um, Jam- so Jamal Crawford
5: funny. and I do not agree on very much. Besides, we're both huge Michael Jordan stands, but other than that, I think we have different basketball philosophies because he loves the Zach Levines of the world, Michael, and uh, you know, I don't always.
3: <laughs> that's that's uh, yeah, that's definitely the Seattle connection there. But uh, to answer your first question. Um, First of all, I would love to someday uh, profile Keldon Johnson, who I've watched almost every Spurs game this year because of this profile that I've been working on uh, uh, about DeJounte. And Keldon Johnson is just a force to be reckoned with. I cannot wait to see how his career develops. And he's awesome. So I want to get that out of the way real quick. But DeJounte has always fascinated me ever ever since the Spurs really selected him, because at the time they were a title contender and there was a lot of talk about, you know, DeJounte kind of falling to them in the draft, and it was just a very typical Spursian pick where, oh, how did this guy fall to the Spurs? That is unfair. And, you know, first year he's in the G League for most of the season. Second year, he's the youngest player in NBA history to make an all defensive team. And then third year in preseason, he tears his ACL. And I think that that injury, I think that he would have been, like, this would have been potentially an all-star season, or last year would have been potentially an all-star season had he been healthy this entire time. That's how much, that's how enamored I am with his game. And there are certainly flaws in it, for sure. Uh, He still has not developed a three-point shot, and that's one of the things that uh he and I have discussed at length uh over the season in, in interviewing him. So and this is
5: you telling him, bro, you really need a J? <laughs>
3: Asking him, you know, what's the deal and if he thinks it'll ever come around. And, you know, we had so, conversations. So let's about- stop
5: right there. I want to dig
3: into that. That's okay. fascinating.
5: So um the guys who can't shoot really know they can't shoot, right? Because it's all they hear all day long. Ben Simmons of the yeah. world, John Morant of the world, right? Often that's a touchy subject. So when you're probing poor DeJounte Murray 20 times over the course of this season about how broke his jumper is, how does he handle that from you, Michael?
3: He owns it, well, like 100%. And, you know, he talks to me about, um, like, I don't want to step too much on the piece, but... He told me about just his – he broke down his relationship with Chip England, San Antonio's uh, famous shot doctor, and just the partnership that they have, the drills that they go through to improve his shot, how it's basically – the Spurs look at it as a long-term thing. Like they don't think that DeJounte should be necessarily drilling threes at a 40% clip right now. And so the way that they've worked on his offensive ability to score is, uh, you know, they start around the basket when he first gets to the league, they work on free throws, and then they've done a ton of work on the mid-range where he's extremely comfortable, and I believe only three players in the entire league Brandon Ingram, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker have made more pull-up twos than DeJounte Murray this season, which really speaks to his growth in that part of his game. Because when he came out, it was like, do not take any pull-ups, please. And so the form is different. And you see growth in that regard. And you're just like, OK, why can't he someday be at least league average from behind the three point line, at least comfortable enough to jack a couple up off the dribble per game and hit them at a pretty decent clip and force defenders to duck to to not duck under screens and follow him above, which opens things up um, in the pick and roll. And so he's like honest about it. He's like, yeah, I, I you know. This is just like my path. I'm getting better and better and better at shooting, and someday I will be a knockdown three point shooter. And you look at the progress, and you're like, "Why would I? Why would I think he's lying?"
5: It's fascinating, Michael. Here's a tortured analogy for you. Tell me if you agree. I think that you know the the three point shot for NBA players and how they sort of get judged on that reminds me a lot of media members and social media. Right? If you go back to 2010. <laughs> It was like, yeah, okay, if you've got Twitter, you know, that's a bonus. That's great. You know, it's we we could tell it's going to be important down the road, but it's just sort of like an add-on. You're not really being judged by it, right? Fast forward to 2015, people are like, you got to have your online brand. You've got to have a, you know, Facebook account. You've got to have this, that, and the other thing. It's like you almost have to be a personality more than just a writer, right? Fast forward to 2021, Michael, and it's like I mean, I don't want to overstate this because I still think there's a lot of substantive work that goes on. Certainly, I'm trying to do substantive work whenever I can. But now it's like we're all just dancing on TikTok for attention. <laughs> it's just the three-point era pace and space is here. Do you know what I mean, though? Like, if DeJounte Murray came in in 2000, I mean, he would be an absolute monster. Like, there would be no criticism whatsoever. He, The three-point shot wouldn't be that big of a deal. He would have probably already been on title teams because he would have found a way to just be that defensive stopper guy on a really, really good team. And I'm not sure he would have all-star credentials at that point, but he would be an all-defensive level guy and the hand-wringing wouldn't exist. And we certainly wouldn't start a conversation about him with his one weakness, which is the same thing we do with Simmons, the same thing that a lot of people do with John Morant now. And, you know, that's the same thing that some people do with writers. Oh, your Twitter's whack, you know? Well, what about the stories? (laughs) What about the stories I'm writing? Right, Michael?
3: I I absolutely love uh, this analogy. It's incredible. Uh, I agree 100% with it. Um, and, you know, you've, yeah, you fast forward to now and you've got writers pacing around hotel rooms at Disney World. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It's, oh, just, it's boy. gone too far, you know? I know. Look. Um,
5: <laughs> Don't hate the player. Hate the game, Michael.
3: But, no, to your point, you know, I think about – I think about a statement that um, that Doc Rivers and made. And by when my he became book, too, the head- by the way. Uh, yes, course, buy, ball, buy all bubble ball. Now. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think about a, a, a statement that Doc Rivers made when he became head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers talking about Ben Simmons and his reluctance to shoot jump shots. And he was like, you know, I coached Rondo, four-time All-Star, and he didn't have a jump shot. And it's like the, the easy pushback is – Okay, you, you you coached Rondo in a completely different era of NBA basketball. Yeah. Where that's
5: like saying, "Hey, Chick Hearn never had a Twitter." <laughs> <It's like. laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. So, um, I think that it, it is definitely an important part of your game. But you know, one of the reasons why I was so drawn to Dejounte is he's still effective um because of the defense because of the intangibles because of you know how he runs a fast break just he's one of the smarter players in basketball and doesn't get a lot of credit for it and he rebounds like uh, he, he averages more rebounds than uh, than Zion Williamson going back to our last conversation so like he's he's just a very peculiar player and I'm 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 just naturally drawn to to guys who just have no um like, they are just one of one, and he is certainly one of one.
5: I, I really like that. I cannot wait to read this piece. I'm so glad my sources were right, Michael, that you that you are writing this. Um, <laughs> yeah. So one thing I've noticed just real quick on—you mentioned the the fast breaks and how he does that. He has now found—like, he's not exactly bulked up, right? Uh, I think he's still pretty, pretty slender overall, you know, compared to oh, yeah. mo- most players' body types in the NBA. But obviously, the length stood out immediately from day one on defense. The length is starting to show a little bit more on offense, too, including in transition, where he gets himself into really favorable situations, and he can finish layups over guys or around guys, use his body a little bit better in traffic. And I think he's at a career high this year around the basket in terms of his finishing ability. It's not that he's dunking and posterizing people, right? But it's that he's kind of sliding through, finding cracks and seams, um, going to the basket when he's in transition or even in half-court situations, and then using that length to find really good shots, right? And that is something that you absolutely have to learn. You know, Lillard really had to learn that early in his career. I remember it was a huge point of emphasis, like, you know, year three, year four, year five for him. Um, You know, even Steph had to kind of develop that once people were trying to take away his three-point shot. And so um, that is a natural counterbalance. Even if your motivational speeches can't build him into a three-point shooter, even if Chip Englin comes up a little bit short on this one, Michael— that stuff really is helpful, right? Especially in playoff series too. And, and Rondo's gotten by with that for you know a long time as well. And that was the reason why you were so excited when the Clippers got Rondo is like, finally someone who's willing to drive within 14 feet of the basket. This is going to look totally different. Um, and well, it hasn't necessarily looked totally different, but they're trying. The Clippers are trying here a little bit. And um, <laughs> I, I just think that, that it's easier to, I guess here's my tie off point there. It's uh-huh. easy, it's easier to nitpick a point guard's three-point shooting because it pops off the box score and not dig into, okay, well, has he gotten more efficient in some of these other areas that are harder to really see play-to-play, um, you know, it, because there are subtle differences. But I think this year, I'm looking at it right now, 64% from within three feet, you know, you go back to his rookie year, it's 56%. Like, that's a big, ju- big difference, big jump, and he's getting a lot more shots there than he used to, right, in, in terms of volume. So, um, that's big. And hopefully it's a sign that he's going in the right direction and he is really fun to play. I guess final question on DeJounte Murray would be this, you know, DeMar's I think been kind of their their face, their franchise leader here the last couple of years, not necessarily in the traditional way, not in a Kawhi way or a Tim Duncan way. I mean, he's just not that level of talented and it's been really a, a group approach. And it was kind of an awkward dynamic there with Aldridge for a while in terms of, okay, whose team is it, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at the young Spurs though, like the guys going forward, does DeJounte have the personality to be the face of that group or is it going to be somebody else or will there be no face and it'll just be the coach?
3: I think he 100% has the personality, the charisma, the leadership qualities to To be that guy for this team, I think, like skill wise and on the court, you know, you 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 don't need to be an all star to be a leader in the NBA, but it certainly helps. Um, and you know, a lot of my story is just about how, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to write it was like the Spurs are in this period of transition for the first time in over two decades, and who is going to be the torchbearer if anyone on their their current roster can can be a torchbearer for all the success that they've they've had over the years and I don't know if DeJounte can be that guy I mean putting I asked Greg Popovich, point blank, this question. He was like, I'm not, I wouldn't give, I wouldn't say that about anyone ever. Uh, like to say that anyone can fill the shoes of Manu and Tony and and Tim Duncan is just ludicrous, which I totally agree with. Yes, um, absolutely.
5: And honestly, yeah, really wait. just Tim Duncan, to be honest. A lot of those other guys got sure. elevated being in his, uh, his proximity, but he would say the same thing about Kawhi, remember? You know, he's like, you know, Kawhi wasn't really our leader and everybody got upset about that, but you compare him to uh, Tim Duncan, good luck.
3: No, 100%. And so I I think that there's a lot of confidence internally with the Spurs, you know, talking to a bunch of people in their organization for the piece that they believe in him as a leader and as someone who can carry on the cultural tenets of the organization that sustained their greatness for so long and pass it on to other players. I mean, he's the only guy besides Patty Mills who like played with Manu, with Tony um, with, uh, with Kawhi with like, he's just, he's been there that long. And so him, him being able to kind of pass on things that were imparted to him by those hall of famers, I think is really important when, when Greg Popovich retires and they just are in a completely different phase of their organization. Um, but he's, he's super important. They love him. And he's one of my favorite players to watch in the league.
5: Well, everybody's got to go check this piece out, sportsillustrator.com. It'll be out uh, later this week, you said, correct?
3: Well, today, I guess. Today, Because it's Tuesday. going up on Tuesday. Yes, today. Oh, today. man,
5: my source is really all all over it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Michael, we've buried the lead enough, okay? we got to get
5: into some of these responses to our all-NBA debates. I want to start with a nice one because we got some not-so-nice ones coming. Raymond in Germany says you should hear that the latest episode was one of the best you ever did. I had to listen to it twice while I was out on my walk outside Freeburg in the Black Forest. He says I'm actually struggling finishing my PhD in art history and even stopped working at the art gallery just to finish my writing. Then he went on to say that he wants the Warriors to beat the Lakers in the Western Conference play-in. And then he attached Michael... Uh, what he called supposedly the biggest tree in Germany at 67 meters tall. A picture of it. Just love it when people randomly drop the superlative um, arboretum references into the email box. Really appreciate that, Raymond. Moon. Um, it was a really fun debate, Michael. I'm curious. You know, we, we were a little bit flustered because of all those positional designations, who gets applied where, after having the weekend to think about it, did you want to change your team in any way? Because I thought a lot about it over the weekend, and I'm doubling and tripling down on everything I said. We're going to get to that, but oh. um, <laughs> um, do you have any changes like, you'd like to put forward here before we get to the uh, peanut gallery?
3: You know, I, th- I th- if I had one regret, it was probably not having LeBron on any of my teams. You think? And you think, Michael? Now,
5: because now. here's what we heard from Spencer. <laughs> Why is Michael such a LeBron hater? LeBron has played 43 games. Embiid has played 47. Kawhi has played 49. Even though LeBron has been hurt, his play when he was available had the Lakers at a better record than Miami and Boston. Yet Michael picks Tatum and Jimmy Butler over LeBron. If LeBron played 50 games and the Lakers won them all, but Tatum played 82 and the Celtics won 45, would Michael think Tatum had more influence on winning? Ridiculous. And then he sent a second email, Michael, a follow-up email to say, I assume Michael thinks a seven-game series victory is more dominant than a four-game sweep. Since that means every player on the team played more games and put up more points, so I included this because you are going to raw point totals and things like that. Um, I'm actually okay with raw minutes factoring into this conversation because I I do think that's helpful to kind of characterize like a player's overall impact, right? Like Jokic just far exceeds the other MVP candidates in raw minutes, so that that's a point in his favor for sure. What would be your answer to Spencer here, Michael? He's going in pretty hard.
3: Well, I mean, first of all, if LeBron went 50-0, um, yeah, he'd probably make my all-NBA team. Let's just get that out of the way right oh, now. Oh, so
5: you're, so you're not a hater then. That's great.
3: No, I don't think I'm a hater. And I recall in that episode repeatedly stating that I was not, in fact, a hater of LeBron James and uh, adore him in a yeah, lot of different ways. Ma- Michael, you know <laughs>
5: who says that a lot, though, in general? Mm -hmm. haters you know haters Haters, often say i'm not a hater but and that's like a pretty like if haters had a t-shirt if there was like (sighs) hater wear right or if they were drinking haterade that would be the slogan for the company i'm not a hater but that's why everyone's gonna have to call you out here michael
3: it's it's the classic with all due respect, followed by an incredibly disrespectful statement. Yeah, that's actually my classic. That's a perfect meeting. Yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah. That'd be a great subtitle for this podcast. Actually, open floor NBA podcast dot 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 with all <laughs> with all due respect. Um, so, wh- who would you squeeze out if you put LeBron in? If you're rethinking this thing? Hmm.
3: I mean it might be it it might be paul george to be honest it would either be paul george or like i know that my my team was very like the forwards between second and third team and then honorable mention there's like almost nothing separating those players so if i had to take one forward off it might be zion like in part because I don't think he's going to play again for the rest of the season. I know that he'll still have a big minutes advantage over LeBron, but LeBron is scheduled to come back. I thought that when we were recording the episode, honestly, that LeBron wouldn't play until the play-in. Um, based on just it, it just ve- looked very murky. But we've since got reports that he's going to come back before that. And not only that, we've since gotten reports that he had the greatest practice in the history of the NBA.
5: I mean, Mm -hmm. AD, KCP, all the initials coming out to tell us about LBJ and his incredible practice and how he's going to be ready. So the Lakers are feeling good after that uh, win the other night. They really needed that against Phoenix. And I I think um, Mm -hmm. they're trying to buoy their spirits any way they can. I think LeBron's got to be on and Zion's got to be off. You know, I am I love Zion. You know that. I've been there since uh, very, very early on in the Zion mm-hmm. hype cycle. LeBron's quality of minutes are just way better than Zion's. And, you know, the, the gap isn't going to be that big because of Zion's injury, like you mentioned. I think that that's the right way to do it. If you make that... Um, uh, swap on your group, Michael, I'm going to pretty much forgive the rest of it, to be honest. I thought that, uh, that was the one that really, you know, kind of ground my gears, frankly. And I'm glad Spencer took you to task.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, I-, I guess we can, we can do that. Um, well, look, you weren't yeah. the only
5: one getting, uh, slings and arrows. Okay. Called
3: mm-hmm. out publicly
5: by J.E. Skeets, host of the No Dunks Inc. podcast. He tweets, look, rules are rules. But please know, I'm going to judge the heck out of your All-NBA first team if you've got Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid. And he says, cough, at Ben Golov or cough. What a call out, you know, just total disrespect. And then he adds <laughs> as a PS, way to stay strong, Michael Pina. Michael, this might be your first victory ever on this show and certainly first public victory. How does it feel?
3: Okay, I'm flabbergasted by this. Is my first victory on this show. <laughs> I, I feel like every time I record with you, I walk away with a W on my back. But um, just message, just message. I know, I know. But uh, no, this was great. Like I, I, I read your column, uh, your email newsletter today with the All NBA team that you would have picked, and I noticed that you had Joel Embiid on your first team, and I, I frankly think that it's disgusting. And uh, So do I, but should... don't
5: blame me. This is my point. And this is, <laughs> this, I don't like it either, honestly. I really don't, but it's legal. These are their rules, and the rules suck. The rules need to change, right? Don't shoot the messenger. Go back to the people who created the rules. And so for me, we're out of this weird compromise situation where they don't want to get rid of all positions. They don't want to go to the umbrella backcourt and frontcourt So they're just kind of working around by allowing you to have these players in multiple categories to try to fudge it, to give you the ability as a voter to kind of just vote the best players in with a little bit more uh, looseness. But it's confusing. The debate shouldn't be about, has Joel Embiid played any forward minutes? Because according to basketball reference, he's played 0% of his minutes at forward. As a voter, you should not be overruling the NBA's mistakes in the ballot to cast your ballot. That's just a dumb system. So my proposal is this. We either go back to listing every single player in one positional category, no matter what, and tighten it up, or no positions whatsoever. I'm fine with it either way, but this middle thing where—and I'd even be fine with backcourt and frontcourt so that it matches the All-Star game. And look, there's a long tradition here. I looked this up. It goes all the way back to the 1950s that they've done two guards, two forwards, and a center for All-NBA— so this is a, a real moment where like we've got to weigh tradition versus expediency in terms of the voting process, but this current setup is just a mess. When you've got like eight different guys who could all be mm-hmm. listed at forward or guard, and you know, that potentially squeezes out or diminishes the relative importance of some of those positions. Like you could load it all up with forwards and just call them guards or vice versa. You could load your front team up with all these centers and just call them forwards. It's nonsense, it's muddy. We need to clean it up. And so I cast my protest vote for Joel Embiid against the system, but also in recognition that he was a top 3 guy this year and top 3 guys should be on the all-NBA first team.
3: I'm definitely leaning far more towards let's go positionless. I think that, you know, I do respect tradition for sure, but it just it doesn't reflect the evolution of the game like that's what we need to do right now it's a it's a disservice to a ton of players to you know just say that Embiid is also a forward but hey Giannis is only a forward he's not a center even though he plays center when they go small and, and he plays point guard the floor. that's the thing like yeah, both exactly. him and
5: Jokic both play point guard so you know can I list Jokic at point guard if, if you know I, I don't know the whole thing makes no sense
3: It doesn't make any sense. So let's go positionless going forward. And I think that that's way more fascinating and it forces people to be like, okay, who are your top five players straight up? There's no dancing around it. Who are
5: yours this year? And and not just like top five best players, but like top five most deserving first team all NBA guys. Because I actually think like with the Embiid loophole – I think I landed where I wanted to land in terms of my my top five most uh, deserving guys. The only question for me would probably be Luka. I would have to go back and look at Luka maybe versus some of the other forwards. But I think Steph, Jokic, Embiid, and Giannis are all no-brainers for that first-team All-NBA selection. What about you?
3: Hmm. E- so I think I'm in the same camp as you. I'm like a way bigger Kawhi stand we've established. So it, it, it would be very difficult, honestly, to not have Kawhi on my first team.
5: Well, Kawhi over Luka is a great debate, right? And it's actually a debate that you could have had because we could list Kawhi as a guard for some reason, right? And you could, list Luka, <laughs> and you so could list Luka as a forward. So like maybe we should have had that debate last week, right? That's a completely fair debate. And I would have had LeBron over both of them if he had been a little bit healthier this year. Um, But I guess what my point is this, like if I actually take advantage of the NBA's loopholes, I'm giving you a more representative top five than the group that uh, you had where you don't include Embiid, right? And I'm not like I'm not Embiid's big number one stand. You know, I'm not eating cheese whiz straight in. You know, straight into my gullet. Like I have, <laughs> I enjoy the Liberty Bell, but one picture was enough. I'm not trying to go back down to the Broad Street. But my point is, despite these very loose ties to the city of uh, brotherly love, I just think it's more fair if he gets that that top nomination this year, especially if they're allowing you to do it. Now, if it wasn't legal, I would not make this case. I would just say, look, if he's only a center, tough break. Jokic was definitely better. You can you know, follow him up in all NBA stuff, just like you follow him up in um, MVP voting. But um, you know, I think the position list thing has a lot of merits to it. Do you think they'll actually do it, or are they going to be too stuck in the mud?
3: I think that based on what we saw this year with... I mean, Embiid and Jokic literally play 100% of their minutes as centers, given the parameters of what we think of when we think of a center... And who else is on the floor with them? It's just like, it's a no-brainer. So for them to be listed as forwards to kind of create this loophole, I feel is an admittance on the NBA's part that change needs to happen. Um, And so it better be positionless going forward. It just should. It's, it's, let me ask you a question. Would you- Is the question,
5: if I'm Doc Rivers, would I line and beat up as small forward for like the next four games (laughs) (laughs) As, as part of my campaign? The answer is yes.
3: If the NBA was you know, m- way more strict about the positions and was like, Embiid needs to be a five, Jokic needs to be a five, would you feel aggrieved at all in the fact that Embiid would have to no. be second team no no, no, and no, no chance to be first
5: team? Absolutely not. If that's the rules, I'm playing by the rules as they're listed, right? Okay. So if, okay. if he is only a center, I'm, it's fine. You're the second best center. You get to be second team. If you're going to do this goofy multiple positional thing, then fine. Then I'm going to take advantage of that. That's my whole point. And- I think when you actually do it and put it out in public and people read forward, first team and bead, it should be one of those things that makes you gag in your mouth a little bit, right? And clearly it did for Skeets. I, I think he was gagging onto Twitter. Maybe he should have been live streaming that. Um, and I-, I hope that's, you know, I'm trying to put a little pressure here on the on the decision makers. That's all.
3: No I feel you I appreciate that as you're calling it a protest <laughs> column or vote or whatever is 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 nice. I like that because it's wrong in the format that it is. It's very, very wrong and needs to change.
5: So we got uh, an email here from Frank in Vietnam and frankly, I'm not going to be able to read it, Frank uh, because you it was four, thousand words long. but he wants us to know that not even giving Russell Westbrook an honorable mention is ridiculous. Frank points out that he led the league in assists by a significant margin. He's sixth in the league in rebounding. Um, He doesn't have a lot of defensive stoppers around him, so they really need his offense. Um, He notes that his health has been much improved here down the stretch, which has been a key driver of Washington's push up the standings. He notes that Westbrook's not a super efficient scorer, but he's still able to carry a big burden even at this stage of his career. And uh, he also points out an interesting thing. Uh, I'm curious for your take on this one. He says, leadership. Michael's always talking about the way that James Harden exited Houston. But what did Russ do? He called out the culture, which he probably tried to change, but couldn't. Harden was the focal point of that culture. He wasn't open to criticism at all and displayed lots of unprofessional behavior, apparently impacting others. Russ took that one shot at the culture. That's it. Requested a trade came to Washington and turned a mess and a lost season into great chemistry and impressive winning streaks. Granted, he needed some time to do as well as support it and get some commitment from others. Uh, So does he get some bonus points for this? What do you think, Michael? Did you give Westbrook a consideration at all? I didn't, but I also didn't consider Beal, and I didn't consider really any player who was on that bad of a team.
3: I'll address the cultural positivity point first. I mean, it reminds me of... The Chris Rock sketch where he talks about how f- good fathers should not get a cookie for being good fathers. That's that's literally just y- your job is to be a dad when you have a child, and so like I'm not giving credit for Westbrook for doing his job and being a good teammate and being pro. You know, trying to to rectify a situation that clearly slanted in one way that is not. Healthy for everyone else involved. Like so, uh, it's just it's when, hard, hard and messing up. When you are planning his
5: plaque at, at Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, it's going to say <laughs> NBA's all-time triple-double leader, which he's about to set this week, and then it's going to say didn't light the Houston Rockets on fire. That's what you're you're suggesting. Maybe that second <laughs> one doesn't actually belong there as a as a big noteworthy accomplishment.
3: No, I, I don't think that it does. <laughs> frankly, um, I, I don't know. Westbrook is. I mean, at the end of the day, if like being this upset that we didn't have someone as an honorable mention is is curious to me. If you think that he should be on one of the teams, then say that. But like not being an honorable mention, like you know, I I think that um, that Frank would admit the the first however many months of the season when Westbrook was uh, a tire fire in a lot of respects and the Wizards were going nowhere you know I'm I understand that they had a lot of different issues that they had to overcome regarding COVID of course but Westbrook when everyone was healthy was not necessarily a positive player and I believe even to this day he's a minus um, in terms of on off contribution I know that that's bumped up a little bit recently but uh so no like you know Westbrook's awesome he's really fun to watch he's really polarizing as well and when you factor in the in, the totality of the season the totality of his game including the defense which is just absolutely atrocious i i don't think that he he belongs here now
5: i think Westbrook's had a really really remarkable season i wouldn't call it great i would not call it all nba worthy I would call it very impressive that he was able to play a role in keeping the Wizards together after they basically had a team-wide outbreak and easily could have just mailed the whole thing in. His energy has been a major driving force for them, but when it comes to this kind of um, you know ranking system and, and who do we give the awards to, I would just go back to John Wooden. I mean, most boring thing ever possible to do, but I'm going to do it. Don't mistake activity for achievement. When we're talking about sixth and rebounds, leading the league in assists and everything else... You know, where is the impact? You know, where do where do the raw stats translate um, to victories into, um, you know, as, as Michael's describing the impact statistics? And, and for Westbrook, that's just been something that's kind of dogged him throughout his career. I didn't vote for him for the MVP in 2017 for the same reason or, or partly of the same reason. I thought there was more deserving candidates. And uh, I don't think it's a crime against humanity. But I really, really appreciated the email from Frank because he broke it down in huge detail. Thanks so much for participating, Frank and Spencer for calling out, Michael. No thanks at all to J.E. Skeets for coming after me. Uh, We appreciated everybody's All-NBA takes. Michael, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, there's only about one more week left in the NBA season, so we're going to be getting into our awards voting, I'm sure. Maybe we'll do that later this week, Michael, hand out our um, our final awards picks, and then we're going to start looking at play-ins and the playoff previews and all that kind of good stuff next week. Keep those emails coming. openfloormail mail at gmail.com. openfloormail mail at gmail.com. Michael, great work on the DeJounte stuff. Haven't even read it. Already love it. Everybody check that out at si.com. Follow Michael on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Vigas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram, at Ben.Golver, on Twitter, at BenGolver. As we jokingly said earlier, but we're dead serious, go find Bubble Ball on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever else you get your books. It is officially out, and it feels so, so good, Michael. All right, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.
4: Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the
0: 4K TV you've been waiting for. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game.